Hello, I'm Angus Scott, and this is The Debrief. This week's show is all plain talk. It's all black and white. It means it must be Newcastle. And why not? What is behind this not-so-quiet revolution on Tyneside? Back in the Champions League, holding Milan at San Siro, and putting eight past the Sheffield side. It's as if the good old days were back and history was repeating itself. So how long will it take Newcastle to win the Premier League? That is today's question. Ben Jacobs has more inns than a pub chain at St. James's Park, and he's got plenty of news that we can toast from the northeast this week. Ben, nice to have you on board again. 30 seconds in, and I just want to make one thing clear. Leicester City what? won, Bristol City <laughs> nil. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks, Ben. Uh, it was nice to have you. I'll talk to Didier for the rest of this podcast. Uh, of course, Fabrizio Romano will also be giving us the latest from his web of contacts, so stay with us for that. But Newcastle scoring eight in the Premier League isn't a first. In fact, Newcastle scoring eight in the Premier League against a Sheffield side isn't even a first. Because back in 1999, an Alan Shearer-inspired Newcastle beat Wednesday 8-0. And playing in that match and keeping a clean sheet for good measure was my old friend Didier Domi. Bonjour, Monsieur Domi. Comment ça va? Bonjour, Angus. Uh, ça va très bien. Merci, mon ami. I'm fine. Excellent. Yeah, fine, good. That, that'll that be the end of that. Look, um, you're now living in Qatar and have been for some time. Um, how are you enjoying that? Well, I've been there for 11 years, as you know, so I'm enjoying it with the family. The kids, obviously, they're in France now at university, but we stay with my wife, so uh, we really enjoy the place, really enjoy the, the region. As everybody knows, you know, we had the, the World Cup last year, which was, for me, fantastic, so... Uh, no, uh, so far, so good. So we really like it here. Excellent stuff. But remind me and tell all our listeners, what was that 8-0 win like back in 99? You had quite a side then. What do you remember of it? Oh, the f- f- first we, we, we changed coaches. So uh, Rude left, Rude Gullit left, and uh, and Bobby Robson came. So it was... Uh, it was our second game of the season. The first one, I think, was in Chelsea. We lost one nil, and um, and uh, I wouldn't tell you that we 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 would score eight nil, but there was a special atmosphere because Sir Bobby Watson uh, was a Newcastle fan, so you 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 could feel there is a special atmosphere uh, around the, the stadium in the stadium. And um, but we never expected just to put past eight past uh, Sheffield Wednesday, but uh, but the atmosphere because of Bobby was wonderful that day. You know, everybody was happy, everybody was waiting. It was like a, a, a second breath, and everybody just wanted to see what we were capable of because I think we had good players. It's just that we had some problem in the in the dressing room, and uh, but you could feel that everybody everybody has changed. And uh, and that uh, it could be a, a really a really nice afternoon. But I repeat to you, we never never expected to pass a, a eight goals to a, to Sheffield Wednesday. So look, Rude's been on this show. We both knew Rude quite well. Um, what was the difficulty then towards the end of his reign because he left out Alan Shearer, hadn't he? The the difficulty it's um, for a coach. Sometimes it's not your. Uh, your skills or what you're capable of the, or the system. Sometimes it's just, 
your relation with the players and your relation especially with the core players because your your task or your goal is always to have ideas principle and just try to uh, uh, to implement that and just to pass the message to the team and the team have to accept it and especially I think the spine the core players uh, and I don't think you know they were on the same page that was a that was the the, the problem that everybody knew so at some point you know uh, uh, they had to split and that's that what happened and, uh, and they called uh, Sir Bobby Robson and the players do you think so the players were too strong they had too much say for Rude then at that time did they no, it's, it's sometimes you can, uh, as a coach or as a player, you can be successful in, in a place and in another place, you know, things can be a little bit uh, uh, more difficult. I mean, relation between players and the coach, sometimes relation uh, uh, between players. And that was the case. So uh, I think it was really good until then, until we started the season, because we had played uh, an FA Cup final the, the, the previous year against Man United. That we lost because Man United did the treble, but uh, but sometimes it's the is the way it is. You 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 can you can feel that uh, uh, there's no gelling in the time because as I was saying, the year before we went to the FA Cup final, but that year was a little bit more difficult, and the result didn't help us. So uh, so yes, sometimes this is just the the relation between people who's not uh, that that great, that, and and they have to split. That doesn't mean that. Alan is a, is a bad person. That doesn't mean that Ruzi is a bad person because, as you know, I really love Ruth. It's just um, the way it is. Look at, uh, sometimes, look at Conte, look at Mourinho. They fell in Tottenham. That doesn't mean they are a great coach. They are excellent coach. It's just sometimes the environment where you are, uh, with the people where you are, is, is going to be a, a good thing. Sometimes not. And it's, uh, it's the way it is. But that doesn't mean that they're not good coach or good striker. Yeah. How much pressure, Didi, did you feel at that stage of the season heading into that game against Sheffield Wednesday? Because you'd lost the derby against Sunderland. You were winless in the season at that point. You'd been thrashed 5-1 by Manchester United. Then, as you've alluded to, you'd lost 1-0 to Chelsea. You turn up to St. James's Park. It's Sir Bobby Robson's first home game in charge. We know that Newcastle fans, regardless sometimes of reality, expect big things from their side. How much pressure did you feel heading into that game? Oh, pressure. Um, I think we're professionals, so we deal with the pressure. The pressure is more pressure of, uh, of result, of course, because when you don't have point, when you, you don't know how to score, this is a, a bit worrying at some times, at some point as well. But uh, when Bobby came, uh, it, it was a, a new atmosphere and we could feel it straight away. Straight away for one thing. So I remember when we were in the, at the bridge, just the day before, we were just uh, eating at night, you know, and I think everybody after uh, finishing the meal wanted just to go to their room. And there was one thing that Sir Bobby Rodson told us is, guys, you stay together another 10, 15 minutes, take your time, speak to each other, laugh with each other, and that's the way we're going to get out of that situation. So he wanted to, to create a, a warm atmosphere, an atmosphere of work, and that's what he did from the first day. So in that point, um, relation between Bobby and the co-player, Bobby and the young player, Bobby and the fans were, unfortunately for Ruud, much better. So 
that's why we, we, we have pressure of result, but we didn't have that pressure because we were really confident in our uh, in our capabilities, you know, with Alan Shearer and, uh, and, and all the other. I think we had a, a really good squad and uh, and from that point, everything started uh, uh, really well. You did. I mean, you had a good you had a good side. You looked through it. You, Rob Lee and Gary Speed in that midfield. Nobby Solano as a winger. Uh, Tamuri Kitzbaya was in there as well, and obviously Alan Shearer, Kieran Dyer was was in that team. Yes, that that was a, a a really good team, I think. But that's why we we I wasn't there the the, the final in '98 in Wembley, but we managed to play two final uh, FA Cup final in a row. So that's tell you all about the. The quality of that team, even with Sir Bobby Robson, we went to the semi-final in Wembley, I think, in 2000 against um, against Chelsea. So no team can do that three times in a row to go in Wembley if they don't have quality. It's just how to exploit our quality, and and we did it really well. Uh, the first year is that in time, it's consistency. We couldn't do it, so we had to change. And with Bobby, we just started where, where we uh, we stopped with uh, with Rude. That's why that team after played we played in UEFA Cup, we played in Champions League, uh, uh, we played in FA Cup final. So uh, yes, there was a lot of quality all around the park. I think when you look at uh, at uh, at Spiro, Gary Speed, Alan Shearer, it, it was a joy to, to to play with them because they were fighters. Uh, we had a pretty direct game sometimes because we have big dunk and. Uh, and Alan, but um, a lot of quality technical as well with uh, Temori Ketsbaya and, uh, and Nobi Solano. So it was a uh, it was a joy every day in training, and uh, and when things were okay, we uh, we came back at our level. It was a joy just to play for that team. A different sort of side, uh, Ben. What are you feeling over the weekend that that, that Newcastle were good or Sheffield United were dreadful? I think Newcastle were clinical and they needed those goals because after beating Aston Villa comfortably in the opening game of the season, they'd gone off the boil a little bit. But Sheffield United were way off the pace. They lacked confidence. It was obviously a very difficult experience for them and quite surprising in some ways because Sheffield United, although they've not got off to the best start, even by newly promoted standards, have been in most of the games that they've played. But Newcastle just had too much class and momentum. And as a consequence, once the first few goals went in, it was always going to be very difficult and Sheffield United's heads dropped. But I think what's interesting this season about Newcastle, Didi, is that they've been a little bit hit and miss. They thrashed Villa, they thrashed Sheffield United. But for me anyway, it was actually the win against Brentford that was more important because they'd thrown the game away somehow against Liverpool, even with a one-man advantage. They'd lost that to a late Darwin Nunez brace. We knew that they would have one eye on the Champions League. They ground out a point there. But prior to that, they get a 1-0 victory over Brentford. And I still feel in the context of Newcastle's season, if they're going to qualify for Champions League, it's a win like that against Brentford that is perhaps even more important than hitting eight goals against Sheffield United. Yes, uh, I think when you look at the, the beginning of the season, of course, because they finished in the top four, we expect a lot from uh, from them. But it wasn't a bad uh, a bad start, you know. When you look at Liverpool, I understand people are were really sad at St James Park, but you know when you hit the woodwork, maybe one, twice, you had so many chances. At some point, because maybe the concentration dropped a little bit because they were eleven against ten. But uh, uh, I always like you know the the 
the, the, the runs that they did, the, the, the physical part. It was the Newcastle that we know. It was just one of those games where Liverpool were, were unbelievable and, and they believed in it. So the only game where I, I felt that Newcastle was under completely the standard was, of course, Brighton. Because you've seen them in the midfield. They were not dynamic. There was nothing. But otherwise, you know, losing one nil in City, uh, okay, the scenario of Liverpool, then they trashed uh, um, uh, Aston Villa. Uh, I think Newcastle have the same base, the same organization. It's just, do they have the will all the time? I think they, they had. Only Brighton was a, was a non-game. I've seen them in, a, in San Siro. They were okay. They could have lost, of course, but it was Milan and... Uh, and it was uh, it was over there, but and look, Sheffield uh, uh, United, you could have won two, three nil. They made it eight nil. So uh, sometimes it's difficult just to digest a season that you have uh, and you finish in the top four after maybe twenty years. You have to digest that, and sometimes five percent drop in uh, in commitment can create some difficulty. And what they found out in Brighton that they cannot have, uh, that, that the mentality should be like last year, all the time top. They will lose game, but they will win a, a, a lot. So sometimes it's good because failure and uh, 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 like Brighton just uh, is just a wake-up call. And this is at the beginning of the season. And now you can see they didn't concede in San Siro. They didn't concede in, uh, in Sheffield United. They passed eight. So you have some warning like that in a season that even if you were successful, you have to be like the big teams. You cannot slip up. Otherwise, people, they will uh, put you back in the reality. That's the job of, of Man City. That's the job of Real Madrid, consistency. And Newcastle, uh, what the president, what Dan Ashworth, what Eddie Howe did was, it's, it's incredible the work that they did. There is a clear connection, a clear vision, but this is the next step. Consistency in the motivation and consistency, I think, in the... In the, in the performances, so that's pretty normal. How important, you talk about that team uh, and how consistent they must be, Didi. How important is it that that Bruno Gimaraes is, is there and stays in the Newcastle side? Oh, I think when you have that position as a sitter, uh, th- that's the one of the most difficult positions I- in the team. And you have to have very intelligent people like Declan Rice because they have to cover the midfield. They have to cover the fullback. They have to cover the center half. They're, they're the, uh, a kind of uh, a core and they're the one who give the balance. So when you look at Gimaresh, he's, he's not the strongest. He's not the, the fastest, but the, his brain is the fastest. The way he moves is the fastest. His anticipation is second to none, and the way he, he, he maneuvers the ball is incredible. So he's highly important for uh, for Newcastle, and I hope he will stay a, a long time. Okay, for the moment, Didi, thanks very much indeed. Well, it'd be very interesting to hear what uh, Fabrizio Romano thinks about the transfer dealings that may come up and the contract dealings that Newcastle have to go through now. Earlier, we caught up with Fab. So, Fabrizio, Bruno Gumaresh has agreed a verbal contract extension with Newcastle. Can you give us the details of that? Yeah, it's almost done. I think it will be signed in the next maybe seven, ten days. Let's see how long it will take to prepare the contracts, to check with the lawyers on club and player side and then to sign. But everything is uh, 
is done for Bruno to extend the contract at Newcastle. It's a five-year deal, so valid until June 2028. Uh, of, of course, there will be an important uh, pay rise for, uh, for Bruno Guimaraes. It was a crucial part of the story because when he joined from Olympique Lyon, he had a very good salary, but now after the fantastic season he had last year at Newcastle, he deserved uh, a pay rise, and this is why they agreed on new salary. So everything uh, is, uh, is ready, and this new contract will also include release close. From what I'm hearing, it will be around 100 million pounds. I say around because there is still some detail to be uh, clarified in the next days when they will sign the contract, but it's going to be in the region of 100 million pounds. And this is something that is 100% confirmed. So the clause will be there and it will be signed uh, very soon in the next days. And what sort of other positions do you think Newcastle might strengthen in January? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it will depend a lot on which competition they will play in January. If they will be uh, still in the Champions League or maybe in a Europa League, I think this is going to be very important to understand what they want to do uh, to, to help Eddie Howe. My feeling is that if they will be still in the Champions League, there is a chance they will go on the market maybe to do something in the offensive positions. So maybe to add one more offensive player let's see if more kind of striker or winger they still have to discuss internally because again now they want the squad to be 100% focused on the on the current moment on, on this part of the season and then probably end of November beginning of December to have the usual internal meeting they have with the with the board and with the manager to decide together on the on the targets but at the moment from what I'm hearing they are very happy with the squad they have they know that probably if they will go to the knockout stages in the Champions League they will know they will need something else in the general transfer window but they still don't have any clear idea of, okay we want that player or to go over that position just about offensive player because there is something they discussed also in the final days of the summer transfer window but at the end there was no right opportunity and so they decided to stay with the with the current squad Fabrizio Chelsea lost again to Aston Villa and failed to score do you expect them to move for Ivan Tony if things don't improve up front I think it's a possibility. Uh, it's not something guaranteed yet because also for Tony now it's time to, to consider all the opportunities. It's not time to negotiate yet. But Chelsea are among the clubs interested in the situation, informed on the situation and the conditions of the deal. Then let's see if it's going to be Ivan Tony, if they will go for different kind of player. I think from what I'm hearing now, they don't want to panic. They know that the situation is obviously uh, not positive at all and that they need to react to that, but they want to react on the pitch, you can't always react on the market. You also have to protect the players you have, protect the manager and let them work. So that's the message coming from Chelsea in the recent days. They don't want to find always the solution on signing new players. So Tony is a player they like, for sure, but this is not something advanced yet or something guaranteed yet and also other clubs are interested in Ivan Tony because from what I'm hearing for example Arsenal also asked for the conditions of the deal a couple of weeks ago and now with new agents obviously the player is uh, 100% uh, available to, to new opportunities so that's why I think for Tony is going to be uh, a busy busy winter. Do you expect Tony to stay in England though I know you've previously reported that there might be some interest in Italy and if it's January what kind of price do you think Brentford would be looking for? Look, Italy, there was something in Italy. It was like uh, March, April, when Italian clubs started to call people close to the player to understand the conditions of the deal. But I think in that moment, they were willing to spend something close to maybe 
35, 40 million euros, and now the price is completely different. I think Brentford would not accept that amount of money for Tony now. I think it will be around 60 million pounds, something like that, for a January move. Then uh, if it's going to be summer, maybe it could be different. But for January, I think we are around 60 million pounds for, uh, for Ivan Tony. In Italy, there was just some initial interest in terms of, okay, it could be an opportunity because many clubs were looking for a striker in Italian Serie A this, uh, this summer. For example, Napoli were looking for a potential replacement for for Victor Simen, but at the end he decided to, to stay at the club. And also Inter were looking for a new striker to replace it in Dzeko, and then also Romelu Lukaku. Uh, also Juventus, in case Lovic was going to leave the club. So many clubs were looking for, for that kind of player, but at the end nothing happened. And so I think in January the most likely solution is for Premier League move, and also because he decided to go with Stellar Group, which is very strong all over the world, but especially in England, I think he really wants to, to stay in Premier League. But as you said last week, he he will definitely be going. He'll be leaving um, Brentford. Now, you, yeah. you mentioned Flavich there. He stayed at Juve. Uh, Jonathan David um, remained at Lille. Could either move in January? I think it's a possibility. Uh, it always depends on the proposals. You know, Lille are very clear in their strategy. They're prepared to sell the player, but this is not something new. This is something that they are stating is almost now one year and a half for almost two years that they are prepared to to sell the player. They are not happy about that, obviously, because it's a fantastic player. And so they, they love to have Jonathan David in the squad. But in case they receive an important proposal, Lille are prepared to let the player go. Also because they don't they know that they can't keep the player forever. And also his contra situation is kind of dangerous now. Uh, so that's why for Lille, it's still an open situation. When I mention the price tag, from what I'm hearing, is always something around 55, 60 million euros. So that's the price for uh, for Jonathan David. Then let's see. I think with Lille, there is also a chance to be creative. For example, to offer uh, a loan with an obligation to buy. So maybe to uh, do a different kind of payment terms model to to make the deal happen. But Jonathan David could be one of the names to to watch. For example, in the summer transfer window. Milan, they have the same, uh, the great relationship, sorry, between owners uh, at Milan and Lille. And so that's why they decided to have a discussion about Jonathan David. But then for Milan, it was impossible to pay 60 million euros for, for a striker. But they keep following the player. There are clubs in England, clubs in Germany. So there is a lot of interest in Jonathan David. But at the moment, it's not something uh, guaranteed yet. Now, Liverpool usually have a quiet January, but they have been linked with uh, Jared Bowen for next summer. Anything in those reports? I think we will see many links with wingers at Liverpool because of the Mo Salah situation. So we expect the Saudis to return for Mo Salah in, in 2024. At the moment, this is not something uh, concrete yet. And so I also understand Jurgen Klopp when he goes public and mentions this Mo Salah situation like, OK, let us enjoy the player now and not speak about the market because honestly, at the moment, nothing is happening. And But I still think that in 2024, they will try again, they will return. And so it's normal to see many links. Uh, I think they will see, we will see many other names linked with uh, with Liverpool. Gerard Bowen is one of them because the scouts of Liverpool are usually following some West Ham talented player and not just Gerard Bowen. They are always in attendance to monitor their players, but at the moment it's not something uh, sure yet which kind of player they want to sign, who is the player that they really like. So I think we have to be ready because we will see many and many links. Then Liverpool, we know how they are. In, in 48 hours, they can sign Endo from Stuttgart and we know nothing about that. <laughs> <laughs> Fabrizio, Harry Kane has been on fire for Bayern. I know that you've been watching him closely. He's got eight goals in all competitions. What can you tell us about a buyback clause for Spurs, which was referenced by Daniel Levy? Is it 
something formal in the contract or just a kind of gentleman's agreement? No, from what I'm hearing, first of all, is not a traditional buyback clause. Daniel Levy mentioned that, but uh, from what I'm hearing uh, is just kind of matching rights. So in case uh, in the next years, uh, Bayern decide to sell the player and to negotiate with any club around Europe for Harry Kane, Tottenham will have the possibility to be informed. It's like, okay, we have a bid from this club. Do you want to match this proposal? So this is what they have in the contract uh, with uh, with uh, Tottenham. And this is the priority that Tottenham will have in case Bayern decide to, to sell Harry Kane. But it's not anything guaranteed. And also very important to mention, the final decision is always up to the player. So it's not that Tottenham can say, okay, we want to match the bid and the player is joining Tottenham. This is not the case. It's always up to the player. So any final decision on the next destination if there will be a next destination because honestly Kane now is not even thinking about that obviously he's very happy at Bayern as you mentioned he had a fantastic start of the season at at Bayern and so the focus is 100% on Bayern but in case there will be a next destination it's always Harry Kane deciding not Tottenham not Bayern and so at the end it's going to be up to the player What's your feeling about Jadon Sancho Fabrizio? Do you feel that he may leave United in January and if so where would he go? Yes, I think there is a chance for him to live in January. Yes, more than a chance, probably. Uh, the only way to change the story is for Jadon Sancho, from what I'm hearing, to Jadon, for Jadon Sancho to go at Carrington, to meet with the teammates, to meet with the coaching staff and with Eric Ten Hag. Not just Eric Ten Hag, but the whole coaching staff. Because when Ten Hag said those things after the Arsenal game, it was re- reference of the world coaching staff and not just of the manager. So they were all together in that position and to apologize. So the only way is to apologize in public with the squad and with the coaching staff. That's the only way. Otherwise, I think Jadon Sancho will leave Manchester United in January, where it's difficult to say because at the moment we have many rumors, but it's nothing concrete. No one approached United yet. But I think that would not be a problem because there could be many clubs interested in a player like Jadon Sancho for a, for a January move. But at the moment, it's still up to Sancho to decide what he wants to do. Okay, and a final word on Kylian Mbappe. Do you expect him to extend his contract between now and January? And if he were not to do that, do you think PSG will get worried and that he might leave on a free? Yeah, I think they are already worried that he might leave on a free because when it's uh, you know September, almost October, and you don't have a new contract in the player's hands, it's, it's always a dangerous situation. But at the same time, at the moment, there is an exchange. There is a discussion between Kylian Mbappé, his mother, and Paris Saint-Germain. This is something important because we still remember in July it was war between PSG and Mbappé. Now there is a conversation, there is a discussion. So let's see how this discussion will continue in the next weeks, in the next months. PSG will do their best to extend the contract, maybe including an exit clause in the new deal. But at the moment, there is still no guarantee. There is still a discussion, but no guarantee that Kylian Mbappé will, will sign anything. So it's still a negotiation. We just have to, to wait in this moment and see what happens. Fabrizio, as ever, thank you very much for your knowledge. It's great to have you along. We will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. See you soon. Ciao, Fabrizio. Thanks, Fabrizio, as ever. With that in mind, Ben, um, how important might January be and how busy might it be for Newcastle? Well, I don't think it would necessarily be busy because January is ultimately a seller's market and Newcastle have been relatively conservative. It was only really that one January when they were fighting off relegation that they were extremely busy. I think that if they're going to target a priority position, it might be another centre-back because when Sven Botman was out and it was unclear for how long, he was sorely missed. And when Dan Byrne and Fabian Scher played together, they looked a little bit more 
uneasy and share obviously in the long run might be replaceable so Newcastle's back four last season picked itself but let's see whether in the next sort of 18 months that's still the case especially as far as the partner for Botman is concerned and they may need some cover for him as well even with Burn there so that's one consideration I think that extending Bruno's contract is naturally important and that's verbally agreed until 2028 and then we have to understand whether or not Newcastle are going to look for that long-term replacement for Callum Wilson. Alexander Izak is effectively that player, but as Wilson gets further into his 30s, will they look for more goals as well? And that might be a consideration for Newcastle in the summer as well. But one thing that we have to understand with Newcastle is that they can't break the bank, even if the ownership want to, because of financial fair play. And as far as their model is concerned, it's really important that they follow up qualification for Europe season on season because that will allow them to change their model. It's the same for Brighton as well. What you don't want to do is get Europe once and then decide to change the model. And it can be difficult in the recruitment market because anybody talking to Newcastle right now knows there's Champions League, they're going to want healthy wages. And Newcastle have always done very well ensuring that there is no one extreme earner. There's no one player that suddenly goes from 100,000 to 200 or 250,000. And that does make Newcastle and Bruno potentially susceptible to offers because the likes of Chelsea or Liverpool or Real Madrid can naturally offer bigger money and players may feel that they can double up as far as their earnings are concerned. So one day Newcastle want to be in a position where financial fair play is less of a concern and they can ultimately be playing with players that are worth 200,000 or more a week. But right now they have to be conservative and that's why I sense that they'll be in for a quieter January. What do you think, um, Diddy? Do you, what do you feel that this Newcastle squad needs um, first of all, you know, when your, 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 your goal is to go back Champions League every year, I think you must have three to four players, I think, every year. Why? It's, uh, you must bring competition to avoid stagnation because every player is different. Some, you know, they, they will want more and some you can feel that uh, um, they have a roof in terms of talent, in terms of... Uh, of uh, of, of going forward. So what, what what do they need? First of all, you know, to double up, of course, you know, all the position. Um, where, where do they need? Oh, maybe you need in a, it, it, to bring competition with, uh, not with Botman, but with Sher in, uh, in uh -huh. center half. Maybe you need yep. uh, another one advanced midfielder. Uh, I think with Isaac, Isaac and Callum Wilson, you you're pretty well equipped because you have someone, you know, who likes the box and the other one who likes to really, really play to drop in the middle of the park. And uh, um, yes, in those positions, but it's just to bring competition because Cher is doing really well. Uh, you can see that Tonali had some problem, but Longstaff is doing well when he's there. So it's always just to, uh, to step up, um, to step up the level. And those positions, yes, I think you can have a, uh, competition, even uh, even in the right wing, you know, to get competition to uh, to to Almiron, it's it's always like that, you know. You you have to avoid stagnation. You always have to have big goals, and sometimes you need to bring a, uh, some competition. That doesn't mean that the players in in place are uh, are at the end of their story. It's just no, you have that kind of uh, high level in training, 
that you will uh, you will uh, you will step up the level after in Champions League and, uh, and Premier League. I think one of the important things for Newcastle is the fact that they get back into the Champions League next year. That has to be their aim. That has to be part of the Saudi project to build professionally and financially by repeated success. And and one of the things about the Saudi project as a whole is that there's talk about the Saudis trying to get their own clubs into the Champions League. Well, earlier in this in the week, with that in mind, Ben caught up with Yasser Al-Mishal, the president of the Saudi FA, and he asked him whether Saudi clubs were going to try and get into the European Champions League. I've seen the news and uh, I think it's just uh, uh, another rumour uh, that I don't know uh, the source of that rumour. Of course, uh, today the European Champion League is, is I would say, the top uh, class uh, Champion League with the number of... Uh, uh, audience with the number of clubs that they have. Uh, but at this stage, uh, our focus, to be honest, is on uh, supporting the Asian uh, Champion League to grow, especially the Saudi clubs. We've had, I guess, uh, uh, four uh, of the last five editions where we've seen uh, a Saudi club uh, uh, reaching the final. So at this stage, there is no plan, to be honest, although uh, in the future, everything uh, could be discussed. If there is any uh, mutual benefits, uh, we will always consider any opportunity. But I can confirm at this stage that there are no plans at all for any club to, to join uh, the, the European Champion League. But you wouldn't close the door in the future? Well, I wouldn't close the door for any opportunity. So uh, it's, it's uh, I would say, you know, uh, we are in a very dynamic uh, phase in general and, and football, uh, you know, you can see a lot of changes, but uh, uh, we will see in the future if, if any good opportunity comes on the table, we will always uh, consider it with the right stakeholders. And do you think Saudi Arabia could host a European Champions League final as well? Well, although we've uh, already hosted a, a very uh, big uh, tournaments. Uh, I don't see it on the table at this stage. Uh, again, we never know what will happen in the future, but uh, for us uh, at this moment, uh, I don't think it will happen in the near future. Ben, it's, it's fascinating what, what, the, what the Saudis may be trying to do here. Yeah, and I think the reason why we're talking about it on a Newcastle podcast is because PIF are the majority owner of Newcastle and PIF control four of the clubs in the Saudi Pro League. So if there was a situation where Saudi clubs entered the European Champions League, then effectively you have a dual strategy, one for Newcastle and the other for Saudi at large. And we may get a situation where there's some kind of conflict and it's very interesting because the wider strategy in Saudi Arabia is about growing sport in Saudi Arabia. It's part of this so-called Vision 2030. Whereas with Newcastle, it's about brand exposure in Saudi Arabia, bringing Newcastle to Saudi Arabia and piggybacking off the Premier League. So if we ever got a situation where the Premier League was rivaled directly by the Saudi Pro League, whether through the Champions League or just generally because both leagues were strong, we're a long way off that. But if that scenario materialised, then 
PIF would have to work out how to handle Newcastle and how to handle their Saudi Pro League clubs, they would always argue, of course, that they're complementary, but we have to wait and see because there might be a scenario where the clubs are fighting over trying to sign the same kinds of players. The clubs are fighting over funding and PIF have to determine where they want to spend their money. So it's a very interesting type of project, the Saudi Pro League. And as Yasser said, the door is not closed to future talks, but I do sense that if Saudi clubs were to enter the European Champions League, then it opens the door to any club entering the European Champions League from outside of Europe. And then you start saying, why not Messi and into Miami? And then what you get is the Club World Cup, which has already expanded. So I think that the European Champions yeah. League will stay as is. And I think that the focus will be on the expanded Club World Cup. And then I think if Saudi try a move, it might be to host a Champions League final. But Didi, it's interesting because you've got the Saudi component at Newcastle. You've obviously got the Qatar component at PSG. They're playing each other in the Champions League. So if ever there's a week where we're going to be talking about this, it's probably the week in which Newcastle face PSG and Saudi have a sort of derby of ownership sorts against Qatar. Yes, of course. You know, it's a sort of uh, of derby, of course. You know, two clubs uh, who are on yeah, but Saudi and Qatar. So to have the Saudis in um, in in the Champions League, I, I, I really don't know. Honestly, I'm. Uh, I know that in 2025, you know, FIFA will uh, will uh, will organize the the FIFA Club World Cup. So maybe in the future we could see all those clubs coming, and that will be a really good competition. Maybe a supposedly a. Uh, uh, Super League, so I see more of those clubs in that kind of competition where you involve all the world, and, uh, and there will not be problem. I think so. I, I'm really keen to see that uh, that competition, the the the, the impact, uh, how people will watch it, uh, how many teams there will be. I think we know, but which team will have because we will have the best teams in the world, and I see more of that kind of competition to involve and reunite. Uh, all the Saudis, the European, and even the the South American. So uh, I, I, I will be uh, very, very keen and surprised just to see the the impact of that competition in uh, in 2025. Yeah, uh, coming back to Newcastle, did he? How far do you think they can go in the Champions League? Oh, that's a big question. Is um, first of all, they. Um, they don't have that much experience, of course, because the players, most of them didn't never play the, the Champions League. So sometimes in some details, they might lose. Or, or, um, uh, but where can they go? It's just, uh, it's just them and their mindset. Uh, where do they want to go? You know, do they want to do a, a miracle? But at some point, you know, there is a, an affair of, uh, of experience, of, uh, of talent as well. But uh, if they have the same intensity as uh, as last year, um, of course, you know they can go in the last sixteen. Then it's all an affair of draw. Uh, but this is a really, really tough group. I've seen some of them. Newcastle could have qualified easily, but this one yeah. was made on This was the exactly if there were sides you didn't want to play. I mean, let's all put them into one pot and uh, put Newcastle in it in it as well, and then go there. You go, lads. Enjoy that one. Welcome, welcome back to the Champions League. Well, the, the original question, though, did he? Okay, is not necessarily about the Champions League, but when will Newcastle win the Premier League? Win the Premier League. So we're not talking about getting back into the Champions League, 
when will Newcastle win the Premier League? And I might put a little brackets there, if ever, close brackets. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Um, f first is the if the vision is still the same uh, because I think they've done really well not buying uh, expensive players and started from the from the roof instead of started from the from the foundation they did it really well because they they, they started with the defense with Botman and Trippier and the, and the goalkeeper and now every year they will add quality when can they win you have to have quality, you have to have consistency, you have to have a, a talent. Um, well, you, need, you need time. So I think, you know, in, in three, four years, if they continue like that, but if they bring real quality, because I don't think that team at the moment, of course, cannot win the, uh, the Premier League because City is far away. When I see Liverpool, uh, uh, I think there is a gap between those, those teams, but... After yeah, four or five years, if they have uh, still the same hunger, the same vision, more talent, the same uh, organization, um, yes, we'll see Newcastle. Why not uh, uh, competing for the for the title? It's just an affair as well, you know. Where Man City will be? Will they be, you know, Guardiola, Liverpool with club because the opposition are so strong at the moment? So just to fill that gap. You need a lot of uh, ambition, talent, collective intelligence to be humble and to work hard every day. They're on this good path, but uh, it's going to take a, a big, uh, yeah, four or five years. A Champions League, it takes 10, 11 years when you took a club and when you work good like Chelsea. But for a uh, for Premier League, if you work good, four or five years, uh, I think you could do it if all the elements are here, yeah. And Diddy, just while me and Angus think of our answers to the key question of the podcast, if it doesn't go according to plan, if they're not challenging for the Premier League, how much time will they give Eddie Howe? Is his job almost harder by succeeding and qualifying for the Champions League last season? Because now the bar's been raised and if Newcastle end up in seventh or eighth, even if they get some form of European football, could Howe's job be under threat? No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so because uh, I see that Eddie Howe is in his place and there is something very important about him with the group of players that he had. He exploited the maximum of that group individually and collectively to bring them back to the, to the Champions League. So I think there's got a good relation between him, the fan, the boards, the staff, and that's a very good uh, good sign. He's a very good coach. I think when you look at, uh, at Newcastle last year, they were the team who recovered the most ball or higher up on the pitch. They were really intense. So I think if you bring, uh, again, more competition, more quality, this is the, this is the nerve of the war, unfortunately. I think that Eddie Howe can exploit every year the maximum of, of that team. That's the most important. And I think that there is a great, great relation, which is all the component of the club, which is very important. Sometimes you can bring a really, really good coach, but will you have the same relation? Will you have the same communication? Will you have the same uh, um, connection with the fans? I, I'm not sure because Mourinho, for example, is a fantastic coach for me. But he failed in Tottenham. It's 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 not easy, you know, to go and to to find sometimes the um, 
the 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 right atmosphere with the, with everybody it's 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 not easy everybody think that we put a coach he won okay he will win no Ancelotti went to Everton it wasn't easy you can sometimes have a big success in the club as I was saying in a, at the beginning and in other club things will will not gel and it it will be really really hard for you and again. That doesn't mean that this guy is a bad coach or this is a bad club. No, you have to find that connection. And sometimes it's not easy. That's tell you all about that. Football sometimes is not all the time on the pitch. It's all outside of the pitch as well. Relation, communication, organization, your, your charisma and things like that. And, uh, and I think Eddie Howe is, a, is, in a, is in a good place and this is a good fit. Him with Dan Ashworth, they're on the same path for me. I think what's really interesting as we wrap up, uh, Didier, is what you say is it's off the pitch. And I look at Newcastle and I go, they're at least five years behind Manchester City. And uh, I think so many things have to go their way for them to win the Premier League at least within the next decade. And I can't see it happening. Uh, Pep's got to leave. Jurgen Klopp's got to leave. There's got to be a serious downturn in what's going on at Manchester United. The Emiratis have to give up and, and not spend money and not bring in the finest coach in the world. Um, and if if uh, the Brighton manager is the successor to Pep, then you can see them carry on going on. Uh, I think De Zerbi will, you know, may, maybe if you, if you believe what Guillaume Balaguer says, he's, he's the next man in the job. And I think Newcastle will maybe come close but I don't think they'll win it within the next decade. Yeah, I ben. think a decade is such a long time in the Premier League. We don't know who's going to come and go. As you say, if Roberto De Zerbi goes to Manchester City, then that project could continue seamlessly. First and foremost, Newcastle have to have depth. Second of all, they have to have a slightly different model so they can spend more and pay wages that allow them to get the very top players in the world. Because PIF could find the money, but they've got to stay within financial fair play. So it's not about winning the Premier League for me. It's about backing up last season with Champions League, season after season. Then after three or four years of doing that, at some point between now and 2030, everything could click and Newcastle could win the Premier League. So I think if it's Vision 2030, then we're going to say Newcastle can win the Premier League in 2030 as well. And that should be a realistic and patient aim. But before all of that, how do they balance Champions League with Premier League? How do they navigate a congested fixture calendar? How do they stay within financial fair play? What happens if they get a couple of injuries? What happens if they concede a few more goals? And this is why I think that win over Sheffield United 8-0 was very significant in the sense that they'd come off the back of Champions League where often teams have a hangover. It was an away game against a newly promoted side and they went there and they dominated and they won that game. So if Newcastle can navigate Champions League and get the depth to ultimately fight in Europe and on domestic fronts, then they stand a very realistic chance over time of winning the Premier League. But hey, I think hang on, Ben, you, you, said, you, said, you, you said over time, yeah, go on, put a time on that. I think if we, I was to but, guess, I would say 2030. Not a 20 or 30 years, but 2030. 2029, 2030 <laughs> is my guess for Newcastle to win the Premier League. I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm past 2030. I'm well past 2030 before they win it. And uh, we obviously want to hear from you Newcastle fans who think I'm talking a load of rubbish. So do get in touch every week. Um, 
through whatever means uh, you hear this podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Um, that is your football debrief. Many thanks to our guest this week, Didier Domi. Didier, great to have you. So, so, so nice to speak to you again. Uh, My thanks to Fabrizio Romano as well. Even when that window is closed, there is plenty of news to discuss with the guru. So he is here every week. And of course, Ben is here every week if he doesn't mention that (laughs) scoreline he did at the beginning (laughs) of the show. So if you promise not to do that again, Ben, we can do this again next week. What about a compromise? I'll only mention Bristol City if Bristol City win, which means I'll never mention Bristol City. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, all right. Now you, you can get off. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back with your debrief next week.